Hello guys and welcome back to another episode of Real Talk with Benno. I am lucky enough today to be joined by the voice of Australian football, Simon Hill. Simon, how are you going, mate? Very good, Jake. How are you? Yeah, good, good. How's, how's life now? We're, we're getting out of lockdown. We're starting to enjoy the world again. How, how have you found it? Yeah, well, obviously in uh, New South Wales, we've been out of lockdown now for quite a while. So that was, uh, that was nice to get our freedoms back. And, uh, you know, from a football point of view, obviously it's meant that we can start the season with uh, crowds inside the stadiums, which uh, is a big bonus. How have you found, obviously, calling games, whether it be a World Cup qualifier or if you've done any calling of the Champions League such off, the, off the cube, how have you found that in COVID times and how different has it been than being at the games? Well, we're, we're sort of used to it now, to be honest. Obviously, it's, you know, it's become the norm. I wouldn't say that uh, it's my preference. I would much prefer to be at the stadium. Uh, not least because sometimes you miss the bigger picture. Um, you know, we're only, when we're calling off tube, we're only seeing what you're seeing at home. And uh, sometimes you can miss things like subs warming up or an argument between the coaches or the fourth official, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, more than that, it's, it's also about uh, personal relationships. So when you travel to games, you know, you meet players, you meet coaches, you meet club officials and... Uh, obviously, from a journalistic point of view, you know, you can pick up useful lines, stories. Um, so it's, it's not my preference, um, but I guess this is the world that we're living in now. And uh, unfortunately, the accountants who run the world have um, seen that it's a much cheaper way to do things as well. So I, I fear that it might be with us for quite some time. Yeah, I think I've noticed someone who watches a lot of AFL and noticed that I think the, the calling from in studio may be something that, yeah, as you said, is, is kept around now that it does seem a more financial, viable and beneficial way to do things for networks. But um, as someone who's not from here, and how, have you found not being able to get home maybe as much as you like? How's, how's that been? Obviously, tough for all of us that haven't been able to leave, yeah. but more so maybe yourself. Yeah, look, that's been difficult. Um, you know, I normally go back to the UK every year uh, as part of my off-season holiday. Um, I've not been able to do that since 2019. Um, since COVID struck, obviously, we've not been able to travel. And uh, it's it's been difficult because my parents are now in their late 80s. <clears throat> you know, so they're obviously suffering at, uh, the odd health problem here and there. And uh, I haven't been able to get to physically see them for over two years. So... Yeah, that's, that's been tough. Um, but anyway, look, you know, fingers crossed uh, next year, 2022, um, I'll be able to get back to, uh, to the UK and, and go and say hello to them. Yeah, I mean, as, as you mentioned, um, 2022 looks like the time we may all be able to, to head overseas. And, and I mean, obviously, you're a beloved Manchester City fan, not something I'm very fond of as the blue half of Manchester, as a United fan. But... I mean, as a, as a young lad growing up in Manchester, what was it like being a City fan? I guess United, obviously, probably one of the biggest clubs in the world and most renowned. But what was it that, about City that caught your heart? Was it your family? Have they always been City fans? And how did you find being on the blue half? Probably the le- more, less successful half for probably your childhood. Well, remember, I'm a fair bit older than you. So <laughs> uh, when I grew up in the 1970s, um, City and United were pretty much level pegging. Mm. United didn't have their success until the 90s. Um, so the two teams were, you know, very even when I st- first started watching City. Um, I'd, I never had any choice as to who my team was. Uh, my dad was and still is 
a city fan all his life. My granddad was a city fan all his life, no longer with us, obviously, but uh, my great granddad played for Manchester City before they were even known as Manchester City in the 1890s uh, when they were called Ardwick AFC. So, uh, you know, it's like a family heirloom or or for a long time a family disease as we joked uh, <laughs> passed down from generation to generation so you know I, I was taken to my first game when I was five six years old I was enrolled as a junior blue um, bought a city top and basically said you know this is your team um, so I never had any choice and I you know I was, I was perfectly happy with that I I loved the the sky blue color anyway and um, yeah United were never a part of the equation for me <laughs> yeah, I think I was I was lucky enough to have a relative choice. My, my old man, who doesn't really follow it too much, but he just said to me, "Look, this is it. This is the team we're gonna we're gonna follow." And I got on board, and I was, had some relatively early success. But of the latter times, well, mainly since Fergie has left, it's been a little more barren for for the red half. Um, what's it meant to you as a City fan to watch, you know, the investment coming to the club, and obviously now one of the biggest clubs in the world themselves? What's that meant to you to be able to see them on a stage that perhaps seemed so far away at one point well look i mean it's in many ways it's nice i mean i i i can't say i don't enjoy winning trophies that's lovely um and you know the last uh, 10 years the investment has given me some of my you know favorite moments as a fan uh, the fa cup semi-final against united sorry about that in 2011 <laughs> i was there at wembley uh, i was there when we won the league in 2012 the same again in 2014 um, so, you know, they're terrific moments, but there, there's a part of me, and again, you know, this comes through me being a fair bit older than you. Uh, there's a, there's a, a large part of me that misses the old city because this is a very different club to the one I, I grew up supporting. They will always be my team, always. Uh, and whenever I get the chance to go back and watch them, I, I do, particularly with my dad, because it's, you know, it's that bonding experience with my family as much as anything else. Um, but I, I miss the days where... You know, I would go to watch City when we're in the third division against Chesterfield and think, oh, I'm not sure we're going to win today. <laughs> Whereas now it's become, you know, a lot more predictable. And again, I, I, I'm being churlish because watching the likes of Kevin De Bruyne and Sergio Aguero, David Silva, Vincent Company, you know, these are fantastic world-class players and they're playing for my club, which is terrific. Um, but, you know, I'm old enough to remember Colin Bell, Francis Lee, Mike Summerby, Dennis Stewart, Asa Hartford, Joe Royal, Brian Kidd, all those players who played for City. And, and they're just as much my heroes as the modern ones. Um, but football's changed and society has changed. You know, you, you can't stop the clock. Um, sometimes I'd like to. Um, but... Yeah, it's, it's sort of swings and roundabouts in many ways. Um, there, there are things to enjoy about it, but there are things I, I perhaps am not so keen on. But I, I guess that's the same for any football fan of my generation. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a tale of almost two, two different clubs, seemingly pre-investment and post-investment. I think you've said it right there that it probably does feel a bit different. But, I mean, I think, yeah, we'd all take trophies anytime, anytime they come past. Well, look, just, sorry to interrupt. I, I no. think a lot of football clubs in England and around the world now are exactly the same. Um, you know, Chelsea is not the club they were in the 80s, not just City. You know, Leicester have been transformed to a certain degree by uh, investment from Thailand. Uh, United are owned by uh, two Americans who barely set foot in the club. Um, you know, so it's... Football has changed, 
and some of it is is for the better you know i i grew up on the, on the terraces where we got treated like dirt and there was a bit of violence around in the 80s and um you know football wasn't always the trendiest or most popular thing to be involved in uh nowadays it's been gentrified and it's much safer than it used to be which is good um but equally i think we've lost some of the atmosphere some of the tribalism that makes football so special and uh you know that's that's some of the stuff that i miss that that real edge on a saturday afternoon both in terms of on the pitch and sometimes <laughs> off it as well um that that was a part of my growing up and uh, i loved it absolutely loved it it's not quite the same today yeah 100% um was watching November 16 documentary the other day in preparation for this and I thought you know why not get into into what is without a doubt for me especially in my lifetime the biggest moment in Australian football history as someone who was there you had the call I mean what what does that night mean for you and obviously you've got some form of investment in Australian football how do how do you see that night and how it impacted Australian football well, again, it's a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword for me because um, in terms of my emotional investment for Australian football, that's probably where it started um, because, you know, I was invested in the result, not as much as Craig Foster on the night. Um, but, you know, I, obviously I wanted Australia to do well. I wanted them to qualify. And I saw what it meant to so many people, uh, people who'd perhaps been marginalised because of their love of football. Um, up until that point. And then all of a sudden, the whole country came on board and the players became household names virtually overnight. So it was, that was a terrific thing to be involved in. Professionally, and I've said this on many occasions, that's not my favourite call. Um, it, it was messy, uh, largely because, you know, Fozzie, who was alongside me, was so emotionally invested in the result. And again, I've, I've recounted this tale many, many times. I remember driving home that night and thinking, we're going to get smashed for that call in the morning. Because it was, you know, rather partisan. It was overly emotional. Uh, Fozzie was talking over me at, at various moments. So in a, in a professional sense, I, I thought it was a mess. And I still think that today. However, what's happened, and this is, I've said this as well, this is a good lesson for broadcasters and journalists and commentators. Because Australia won, nobody cared. Yeah. And it's been remembered in the right way and in a very positive sense, which you know I'm hugely grateful for. And as I say, it's a lovely thing to be involved in. But it's a lesson that doesn't matter what we do. It's about what happens on the pitch, really. And you know we've become associated... <laughs> with that moment in in a very nice, uh, positive, uh, sepia-tinged way, I think, which is lovely. Uh, and I'm very grateful to have been involved in it. But if you ask me professionally whether that was a good night, no, it was horrible. I'd, I much prefer the, you know, the calls at the World Cup and, and, and others since that people have forgotten about. But, you know, that, that's, that's sport and that's football for you. People remember it on the basis of win or lose. You mentioned there that that wasn't your favourite call. We'll touch back on that night quickly, but I wanted to just dive in. What is your favourite call? You've had so many. Is there one that stands at one moment, one game that stands out in your memory that you think, yeah, I've, I've done that well? 
Well, look, again, without wishing to sound obtuse, I think people sometimes forget that I had a 10-year career in the UK before I came to Australia. And obviously, people here don't necessarily know that the games are called <laughs> over there. You know, I have a few favourites from back in the UK, even obscure matches. I did a game between Swansea and Blackpool uh, back in, oh, gee, I think it was 1993. And I had a good call that day. <laughs> you know, everybody go, huh? Uh, well, I don't remember that. Well, of course you don't. Uh, but I do. Um, in, in Australian terms, I think the World Cup games in Germany 2006, particularly the first one against Japan, you know, I wanted to get that right. I wanted to nail it. And I, I hope I did. And maybe not everybody will agree. But I was personally satisfied with, with that call. Um, and there are many others, you know, grand finals. The, the Brisbane Central Coast Mariners game in 2011 was was a good one to call. I enjoyed doing that. And, and there are various calls of goals down the years that I've thought, yeah, I got that right. And others where I've thought, oh, dear, I got that horribly wrong. This is the career of a commentator. Um, and everybody else's highlights of you might not necessarily be yours. Yeah, I think you touched on that 06 World Cup. The first game. I mean, I can still remember the, the Tim Cahill. The second goal was, what a goal by Tim Cahill. Tim Cahill's done it again. That sits in my mind. Yeah, and I think I it does a lot of over. people. Yeah, so I think Which is personally nice. from that one, it, you nailed it. And especially as I was only just starting to watch football at that stage. So that call is something that always sits in my memory. So hence why I was nice. very keen to have you on today. Um, we'll go back to November 16th. If John Aloisi misses that penalty, did you have a call in mind if it didn't go as well as it as thankfully it did did you have any idea what you might do if, if he misses that's a good question actually i don't think i've asked, been asked that before um yeah probably you know you you try and have a a line prepared for the ultimate scenario of a game win lose or draw so i probably did but what it was i mean it was 16 years ago <laughs> i've got no idea um Obviously, you know, I had I had a couple of lines prepared for if they'd won, which they did. So that was the stuff that went out. Um, it's like, you know, what's taken to a game every year but never used? The the Losers' Cup final ribbons. It's like the, you know, the, the commentary line on the team that, that loses. So, yeah, I probably did, but I, I have no idea what it was. I can't remember. Um, obviously, that would take some preparation. You've, you've commentated some, now that Australia's moved into Asia, some... Pretty obscure matches, I would have thought, against nations that maybe you haven't kept on your radars yeah. heavily. What, what does preparation look, look like in the early stages of an Australian qualification campaign where maybe they're versing a nation that, you know, we might not know any of the players? What, what kind of work do you have to put in and what kind of background do you grab from those, from those nations? Yeah, look, it's, it's a fair bit. Um, obviously, it depends on the nation. You know, if, if they're playing uh, England, for example, or, you know, Argentina, then you, you, you're okay. If you're playing North Korea or you're playing Vietnam, it's a bit more tricky. So, you know, you, re you rely a lot on the internet, obviously, both in terms of research and clips. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, when Australia played Vietnam recently in the World Cup qualifier, because the names of the Vietnamese players are very difficult to um, Anglophone speakers, uh, I was lucky enough that my local laundrette is owned by a, a Vietnamese couple who I've sort of got to know over the years. So I, I presented my friend at the laundrette with, with a list of Vietnamese names and said, would, you know, would you mind telling me how to say these, these names? So he sat down with his uh, mobile phone and literally recorded himself saying all the names phonetically. Now, 
you know, in the blink of an eye when uh, the ball is being passed from one to the other, I might not have got 100% of the names correct 100% of the time. Uh, but I, I think you're duty-bound as, as a commentator to at least try. Um, that shows respect for the opposition. Most people in Australia won't care and won't know the difference. But I, I think it's, it's your professionalism. And also there will be people of Vietnamese heritage who will be watching. Um, and I know how much, you know, it grates when other nations get names of our players wrong or they call us kangaroos rather than soccerism. And that happens a lot. Um, so, you know, I think you're duty bound to try and do as much research as you can. Try and find out a bit of background about the players. It's not always easy. Uh, and I'll give you another example. Um, I did a game at the Asian Cup in 2011 uh, involving North Korea. And they had two players of exactly the same name. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't find any information out about all, any of them, really, you know, bar one or two, because obviously North Korea is rather a reclusive society and they, you know, they don't have a huge web presence. So it's tricky. And, um, you, you know, you don't always get it right. But I, I try and put as much work into the opposition as I do the home side. I, th I think you're duty bound to do that because as callers, you know, we're, we're supposed to be neutral, really. Sometimes, you know, a little bit of um, home bias might creep in when Australia are playing because you're calling for an Australian audience. But by and large, I, I like to keep it fairly neutral. And I also think if you, if you go down the road of almost cheerleading for your nation, I'm sorry to say this, this does happen in other sports in Australia. I think you then forget to be uh, critical in the right areas. And the game needs that our game in particular, because it's not the number one sport in Australia. You have to discuss the issues and the problems, if there are any, on a, in a fair and dispassionate manner. And you can't do that if you've got an Australian scarf hanging around your neck. So I, I think that's part of our responsibility as broadcasters, but not everybody agrees. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think it is very, a very parochial nature to how a lot of national sports are called in Australia. I think you do, you do do a very good job of, of splitting the middle down there and the preparation. I mean, it's second to none. I couldn't imagine for a second looking up Viet, Vietnamese players down at the laundrette. Um, That's my life. <laughs> <laughs> glamorous, glamorous. Yeah. Um, I, as someone who, you know, picked up football around the start of the A-League, you, your voice and your face was synonymous with it for me. Obviously, Fox Sports and your time together came to an end rather surprisingly for, I guess, probably from people on my side of the camera. I mean, for you, how was that, that change? Obviously, you'd been there for quite a while at that point. How did that change? You know, how did you feel once that happened? Was it a bit of a surprise to you, given the fact that, for me personally, I think you're the number one football caller in the country. Were you a bit surprised that you were no longer part of the plans? Uh, thank you for those kind words, by the way. Um... A bit shocked, but not surprised is probably the best way to, to sum it up. Um, the last three years, there were difficult. Uh, they were difficult, not just for me, but for the game of football, because it was you know, quite apparent. And I, I think obviously, you know, most people in the football community picked up on this, that, that Fox's um, commitment to the game was waning. Um, they decided to prioritise other sports, which is, you know, well within their remits. They, they paid for them. And football had its own issues. We, you know, we contributed to that as well with this, <clears throat> excuse me, three-year governance war that, you know, almost broke the game. Um, some of us tried to cover those issues 
uh, in depth. Um, that wasn't particularly encouraged. And some of the relationships that I had there, not with my on-air colleagues, I have to say, I had no problem with any of them to, to a man or woman. Um, but higher up the chain, it was difficult. Um, and I think that's because maybe, you know, I don't know, I represented football more than others. I don't know. Um, I certainly fought for it hard. Um, and so at the end of the day, when the decision was made, uh, yeah, it was obviously it was a shock because all of a sudden in the middle of a global pandemic, you're out of work. And that, that was, you know, very stark reality for me. Um, but was it a surprise? Not a hundred percent. Um, and look, you know, broadcasters make decisions and, and they're entitled to do that. Um, I, I have no problem with that. I thought it could have been handled a lot better, but that's only my personal opinion. They may have a different opinion. Um, so, you know, I, there I was, it was, that was my reality. And, uh, to be honest, and I've said this before around November time, you know, I thought, very seriously considered returning to the UK. Um, there wasn't a lot of work around as a, as a freelancer. And I, th I thought it was just probably time to, you know, to, to leave, really. I thought my time here was done. Um, and that's it coincided with the COVID spike in the UK. And of course, at that time here in Australia, none of us were vaccinated. So I thought, mm, I'll, you know, I'll tough it out for another month or two and, um, and see where we're at in the new year and probably go back then. And of course, by then the landscape had started to just change a little bit. And one or two people said to me, oh, you know, just hang on, see what happens. You know, if it goes somewhere else, then, you know, maybe they'd be interested in, in having you. So, yeah, ultimately, I mean, that, that's what I did. And obviously, I'm grateful I did that because uh, Network 10 were, you know, were good enough to offer me, the, offer me this opportunity, which... Uh, I was happy to take. So, you know, it's, it, it's come full circle and, it, and it's, it's obviously a, a sort of a happy ending for me in that way, but it was, it was a very difficult year. Uh, and I have to say that I was sustained in, in so many ways by the support that I got from the football community who were just unbelievably good to me. Um, so I'm very, very grateful for that, very humbled by it. Uh, and hopefully over the next couple of years, I can, you know, pay, pay that back a bit with uh, trying to promote the game in, in the right way for Network 10. You, you mentioned there promoting the game. And I'm sure, I'm sure you will. And I'm sure hearing your voice will bring people maybe back to the game that maybe it's like had distanced themselves a little bit just from hearing a familiar voice. But you mentioned the promotion of the league. It's something that I think is a hot topic this time of year, almost every year. Shelton has done a pretty decent job. I can't remember seeing this much advertising for the A-League. And I'm, I'm, I'm a lapsed yeah. fan, so I used to go regularly. I was a member. Now, I don't pay a lot of attention to the A-League itself. What do you think, you know, the, 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 the league, the FA, 10, what can all these companies start doing that can maybe bring the game back to, to a popularity that, we've, that we have once seen it, perhaps? Well, I think, you know, they've made a pretty good start, to be honest, with uh, the cross-promotion of, of football through the mainstream programming, shows like The Project, MasterChef, you've seen Archie Thompson on that, Tara was on, have you been paying attention? Uh, at the end of the Melbourne Cup, there was a, a one-minute ad for the A-League as soon as the, you know, the, the race finished. That's gold for us. You know, that's the sort of coverage that we've been 
uh, crying out for for years. So I think that's great. Um, you know, weekend one, I know there was a few tech issues with, with Paramount Plus. That, you know, that's always going to be the case with, with a new streaming service. They're, they're lying those out. Uh, I, I think essentially the whole game, <laughs> if we could work together, which is, <laughs> has proved almost impossible over the last 50 years, I think would be unstoppable. And, and I think the priority has to be the football fan. Um, you know, we hear an awful lot in this country about coaching, about youth development, about player pathways, and they're all important topics. What we rarely hear about is how we're going to get more fans inside the stadiums and watching on TV. And without that, without them, all the other stuff doesn't happen. So it's got to be a priority. And, and the first point of sale of the product, if, if I can put it in business terms, is to the football fan the fan who has already got football in his or her blood. Um, and I think for too long in Australia, we've been guilty of uh, overreaching ourselves and going for the mainstream fan, looking for you know the rugby league, Aussie rules cricket fan, who might be interested in a bit of football in the summer and diluting our own product to suit those people rather than giving the football fan what they want, uh, which is rectangular stadiums, um, active supporters, an authentic competition, ultimately, and I keep saying this, a national second division with promotion and relegation, a connected pyramid, all those sorts of things. Already the FFA Cup has you know, gone halfway to that, which has been brilliant. Um, but just a competition that football fans will get out and support and latch onto in terms of its tribalism. That's what football's about. And if we do all that, the mainstream fan will come along anyway. You know, I, I, rem I remember the first year of the Western Sydney Wanderers, 12, 13. I swear 2,000 people extra turned up every week just to watch the RBB. Yeah. And to be a part of that atmosphere because it was brilliant. And then we killed it off um, because the mainstream got a bit upset over a couple of idiots. And, you know, we tried to appease them because we were scared of upsetting the mainstream instead of saying, you know, on your bike, our fans are great by and large. And if we've got a couple of idiots, we'll sort them out. Um, so I think, you know, that focus has to be uh, to football people. Again, you know, when I was a kid, to go back to your first question, you know, my dad didn't say to me, which sport do you want to choose, son? Um, you know, do you want to go to this one week and that? Which team would you like? Do you want that team or do you want that team? Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was like, this is your team. This is your sport. And that's what we've got to build over the generations. It's, it's that tribalism. I know Australia is a little bit different because, you know, the, there's a lot of competition. But the football fans are there. We've seen that in the past. And we need to get back to focusing on what they want, not what the other sports want or not what the fans of the other sports want, what we want. Yeah, I think, as I said, someone who only really got into football probably around the start of the A-League, I remember going to victory games, sitting in the Northern Terrace, and everything. it was different to as someone who goes to the football, the AFL every week. It was different, and I liked it because it was different. And that there was you what, go. that's what interested me. And why did you stop going? Because the, the, so the Northern Terrace got a bit as you said, diluted. We, we wouldn't have to stand anymore. And, and then rather than go. spend my membership to go sit in a seat, half the fun of going was to be in the yeah. active area with my mates. There you go. I can sit so, at home on, and sit down and watch the game from home if I'm going to sit down. It's not rocket science, is it? Yeah. I, and as, now I 
fleeting interest of victory one on the weekend. So it's a step to getting me back to, to watching them. And, and as you said, I think the advertising has been a big thing for this. Probably the first time in a lot of years I knew when the season started. I feel, mm. like, it, I feel like in the past I, I've been wondering, hey, this, it's got to be soon. Whereas I knew yeah. I was like, this is the weekend. Um, you mentioned relegation promotion, obviously an incredibly exciting and, and integral part of most leagues around the world. How far away do you think we would be from that? You mentioned FFA Cup. We saw South Melbourne take on Melbourne City last week or the week before, and it was quite a good crowd, and there was a lot of buzz about it on social media. So there's obviously a, an audience for it, but how far away do you think we are as, from the A-League from having a proper promotion relegation football pyramid? Well, look, we might be a few years away from having promotion relegation, but um, I, I think we could start with the National Second Division. I think that's the first building block that could be put in place quite quickly. And the FA... And AAFC, the umbrella body for the MPL clubs, uh, keeps talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. I mean, this first uh, iteration of, of the National Second Division was first mooted by the MPL clubs called the Championship back in 2017. You know, that's getting on for five years ago. Now, at some point, we've either got to put up or shut up. And the FA consistently says, oh, we're just trying to find the right model. We want it. You know, we're thinking about next year, maybe the year after our COVID, you know. Mm. At some point, you've got to stop talking. You've got to do it. Or you've got to come out and say, we can't do it. It's, it's one or the other. But you can't keep kicking the can down the road and expecting the football community to stay on board with you for the journey because it's been too long. So... I think they've got to make a decision on it. Uh, look, I don't know what it looks like and I don't know if it succeeds or not. And it may well be that it topples over, but at least we'll know. And I think we have to find out because there's a, a section of our football community that refuse to get engaged with the A-League on this topic, basically. That, you know, they're wedded to their NPL clubs and I get that. If you've watched your NPL club for 20 years, why would you go and change? And you want the opportunity to play at the, at the highest level of the game in this country. Um, I, I think the first interim step is to put in place a second division, get it bedded down for three, four, five years, however long it is. I know the A-League clubs aren't keen on relegation. Why would they be? <laughs> you know, that's turkeys voting for Christmas. Yeah. But at some point, the FA as the regulator has got to say, we're going to do this. And within five or 10 years, if it works then we're going to have promotion and relegation. The alternative is they come out and say, sorry, can't do it. It's too hard. At the moment, they're in the halfway house going, ah, we want it, but we're not quite sure how it looks, how it's going to work. We don't know when it's going to start. We don't know what the money's going to look like. There's too many ifs and buts, and we've talked for too long. It's time to do it or say we can't, one or the other. Do you think maybe they're worried about what clubs might be relegated? Say like Melbourne Victory last season, at, their, at the peak of their powers, one of the biggest clubs in the country. You think they may be a bit worried that if Melbourne Victory went down, what that means for that supporter base? Or yeah, they may be just fearful well, that it's not the Mariners, no disrespect to the Mariners or the Jets or anything like that. But they may be just worried that they might lose one of the big dogs a bit early and then who knows what happens with that fan base? Well, you, yeah, okay. You, you might have lost a victory last year had, they, had there been promotion relegation, but, you know, you get promoted 12 months later. You have 12 months of pain. You know, th this is how football works yeah. around the world. You know, my team, I remember many people say, oh, you're the city too big to go down from the, from the Premier League. And then it was, oh, you're way too big to go down from the, you know, the championship. And we got relegated twice. 
and it was tough and they lost a lot of money and they were on the brink of going out of business but they you know they managed to find a way back because they had the passion for the club and they made ultimately the right decisions in terms of the players and the coaches to get back up uh, that's how football works you should not be rewarded for mediocrity or failure uh, and if victory were to go down, and by the way, let me say, you know, victory's crowds last season, their biggest crowd all season was 11,000. Yeah. And at some points, they were down to four and 5,000. So, you know, their, their supporter base almost vanished, even without relegation. Now, they'll be back this season. I have no doubts about that. But you can't protect clubs, um, you know, forever. You, we have to have an open system at some points. Um, and if victory go down or Sydney go down, well, they got to get promoted the year after. And if they're good enough, they'll get promoted. And if they're not, they'll stay there. And if they stay there long enough, they won't be one of the big clubs. Yeah. Somebody else will take it over. You know, that's, that's how sporting meritocracy works. I know it doesn't work that way in the AFL and the rugby league. Good on them. That's their sports. You do what you want. We're not AFL and we're not rugby league. We're football. And this is how football works. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be an, it'll be an incredible step if and when it happens. And I think you know you talk so passionately about it that it does seem to be the scope for it. And I think once it, once it does happen, I think it open plenty of plenty of doors for for those. Doesn't have to happen. Doesn't have to happen immediately. Yep. You know, you can set up the national second division and protect the A League for a few years whilst you see whether the second division works and is viable financially if it doesn't work what have you lost apart from a bit of you know reputational damage which i understand but if the clubs want it and say they can afford it um you know if they've got the model right do it stop wasting time Let, let's try it and if if we can't well okay come out and say it's it's not viable we can't do it sorry yeah, at least I mean, we know. Yeah, one way or the other, at least we can move on and leave the discussion. Yep. Um, Socceroos, obviously we've spoken about the making one World Cup. They've made, met now it just becomes seeming something that happens. We, we make World Cups, but it doesn't seem as certain as we all maybe thought maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago. A couple of poor results on the bounce now for the boys and it's teetering on that playoff spot. How do, how do you see the rest of the qualification process going and, and how are the Socceroos going as a whole? I know they had an 11-game winning run, and but are they going as well as maybe that suggests or is there a bit of rocky waters ahead? No. Well, look, let's be brutally honest. Without wishing to take anything away from the Socceroos, that 11-game <clears throat> excuse me, winning run was against nations who are, uh, are not exactly powerhouses. Um, so it's not that it should be disregarded, but it, it had to be put into context. And now that we're facing you know, nations that are stronger, Japan, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, it was always going to be more difficult. Um, personally, I, I still think the Socceroos will make it, but they, they might have to go through the playoffs. And of course, we did that four years ago under Ange Postacoglu. It wasn't meant to be easy, Asia, and it isn't. And it's getting increasingly more difficult because a lot of the nations that were traditionally behind us are investing huge amounts of money in player development, coach development, league development. Uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, leagues around Asia these days, and I'll give you Japan as the example, and I've said this many times, they started their J-League in 1993 with 12 clubs, which is basically what the A-League is now. Uh, now in 2021, they are up to three divisions with 57 professional clubs. That's 57 clubs who are em employing 
<clears throat> probably conservatively 18 to 20 professional players. That's got to give you a better chance of success at national team level. By sheer weight of numbers, um, those players uh, are now coming through systems. Our players, we have 12 clubs. If they don't make it to one of those clubs, and Kenny Dougal is a classic example here, you know, didn't make it at Brisbane Raw, almost dropped out of the game completely because there was no safety net of a second division or a third division that he could go and rebuild his career. So he took a chance by going to the Netherlands and playing for Telstar, I think it was. And now he's playing, you know, championship football in England and he's, he's in the national squad. So, you know, we, we, again, this goes back to the national second division, unfortunately, to a large degree. The more professional clubs you have, the better development pathways, the more opportunities you have for your players and the better chances of success we have at national team level. It all comes down to investment and money. Of course, it's tricky. I know that. Lots of competition. Um, but, you know, we'd, we've, since the A-League started 2005, we've only expanded by four clubs, um, which really is, is not enough. No. And again, we've got to get on with it. Yeah. Do you think maybe missing, if, we, if Australia didn't qualify and they miss a World Cup, would it almost be the rocket that everyone needs to go, oh, actually, hold on, it's not going as well as maybe we've perceived how do we fix it because it may be at this point we're just qualifying robotically and we're taking a bit for granted well (laughs) yes but again this this sort of leads into another issue with the game in australia that uh, let me tell you if if it was for example a cricket world cup or a rugby world cup and australia didn't qualify goodness me we would have pages and tv shows dedicated to what the heck was going wrong with those national teams now unfortunately when it comes to football in this country we don't get a lot of media coverage so if australia were to fail to qualify yeah there'd be a couple of days of right this is disgrace we've got to do something about it and then it would vanish it would vanish off the radar and that's just the reality of the game in this country. So I don't know if that would necessarily be the kick up the backside that the game needed. I think it has to be a collective will inside the game to recognise uh, some of our problems, um, because unfortunately, you know, the, the the football media in particular has almost disappeared. Um, so there there are very few people to hold powerful people to account and say, you know, this ain't good enough. You're not doing a good enough job. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, that one. I'm not sure. You mentioned there that the football landscape, or the football media landscape is dissipating a little bit. It's very different to when I started watching football. But going forward now, new TV deal for the A-League, a lot of the talented people like yourself are at different places than perhaps when I, when I first was watching, everyone said a bit Fox Sports, that's where everything was going on. Now everyone's yeah. here, there and everywhere. What's, what's in, the, in the future store for you other than commentating Channel 10 and the A-League and the internationals? Is there anything else on the horizon for yourself going in the, the end of 2021, start of next year? Well, no, I, th- I think that's enough to be uh, going on with, to be honest. Um, you know, I've got plenty of games to commentate over the next few months. Um, I'm still doing my radio show on SEM, which is good because that's another you know, avenue for publicity for the game. Uh, I write a couple of pieces here and there for Footyology, Rowan Connolly's uh, website uh, down there in Melbourne um, and various other things. So, no, I mean, for the next uh, two years, you know, I'm pretty much uh, set in, in my in my workflow to use the modern buzzword, but um, you never know what's going to happen after that. You know, they might not want me or I, I might decide I've, 
you know, it's time to go back to the UK. I, I genuinely don't know. It's it's in the lap of the gods. So, but you know, I, I feel as though obviously there's still a, a job of work to do here. Not that it's you know my responsibility necessarily, nor all on my shoulders. But um, you know, I wanted to play a part in the regeneration of the game in this country. Uh, and we've got so much blue sky ahead of us if we can ever fulfill our potential uh, of which we've only just scratched the surface of. So there's a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, the, the game is is back to a pretty low base in terms of, uh, you know, public perception. So we've got to try and build that up over the next two years. So hopefully I can help doing that. And then, um, yeah, we'll see where we are in a couple of years. Yeah, I think... As you said, you're playing an incredible part in it. Um, there's no doubt. And I, I had we've run a little low on time, but I had written down the you've met, you've mentioned once five percent of the potential's been reached. And I think you're right. Yeah. I think if if we can crack anywhere near that ninety-five that's left over, I think the game will be in a tremendous space. And I think you are you are leading it in a terrific way, whether you, you think you are or not, I guess for people like us that only taking that, that bit of media of football, Australian football at the moment, you're one of those most recognisable faces and voices that we Thank do you. trust. So That's I really appreciate, really appreciate you coming on, mate. It was awesome to hear you talk so passionately about football. And, you know, hopefully we've, we've got a tremendous A-League and Premier League season ahead. Quickly, before I let you go, though, predictions, A-League and the Premier League, where do you see it falling this season? Uh, well, I've said all along that I think Melbourne City are going to be very difficult to beat. Um, they, they look to me to have the best squads. Very little change from last year. In fact, they've added to it with Matthew Leckie and Manuel Pucciarelli. Uh, so they look very strong. Um, uh, I think victory might challenge, to be honest, under Tony Popovich. So it might, might be a much better year for Melbourne in total this year. Uh, so that's my prediction for, for the A-League men. Um, in terms of the Premier League, look, it's one of three teams to win it this year, isn't it? It's Chelsea, it's Liverpool, or it's Man City. I don't think, I don't think any of the other teams are, are really within range of, of that top three. Uh, which way it's going to fall, I don't know. Chelsea at top at the moment, they look very strong. They, they, you know, again, they've added depth to their squad this year. Uh, City have got great depth, but we don't have a striker yet. We might get one in January. I think that's critical for City. Liverpool have arguably the best starting eleven out, out of those three, but have they got the depth if if a couple of injuries you know go against them? So it's yeah, I, I don't quite know which way it's going to fall. Obviously, as a City fan, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be us again. Um, but if not, I'll, I'll settle for the Champions League this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think as a United fan, I might just take an FA Cup and run. <laughs> they offer it to us this season. Thanks so much for coming on, Simon. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. I look forward to hearing your voice across the A-League season. Pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me.